Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos, The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. And today we have a show. We're going to actually have a great show. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court and what it means for our rights. I mean, clearly abortion is on the firing line and in probably about to get overturned in um, or at least get knocked down to the state level. But also what, the, what kind of implications that might have for the 2022 midterm election. Today, our guest will, will be Brian Fallon. He is the executive director of The Man Justice. He was a guest back in March. So he sort of set the table of what the current uh, Senate had to do uh, on the issue of court reform. Of course, none of that happened, right? <laughs> because not much has happened in the Senate. But now we can wrap up the year, how the year turned, how much progress he's made in trying to convince the Democratic caucus that they need to focus on court reform. Before we get started on that, though, a couple of things. One is last week's episode on on uh, talking to people across the ideological divide was by far our most popular show ever. Carrie, was, that was a it was it was all soft news. <laughs> I don't know if it was soft news. I mean, it, it, I mean, clearly it wasn't directly focused on anything happening in the news cycle, but it's actually an issue that's very, very important. This is we are losing the messaging battle. We're not talking to people on, you know, that are potentially persuadable. And a lot of us are actually having to deal with family members that are ideologically hostile in the holidays. Check it out. If you haven't heard it, seen it yet, definitely I, I recommend it. It was incredibly popular. Feedback on that show was pretty amazing. So, uh, and, and, you know, one of our producers said <laughs> it was her favorite show and the one that made her the most uncomfortable. Because right. it is like, we don't, I don't want to talk to Trump supporters. <laughs> I mean, just, well, and just to be clear, right? Because a lot of the feedback before anyone watches it is like, I don't tell me when Margie, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, look, we're not talking about reaching out to Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? <laughs> we're not talking about no Nazis. Like, yeah, right. No Nazis. We're not talking about finding common ground and building bridges to the Nazi side of the, you know, the nation. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like being able to have some conversations with people who are maybe a little on the fence, you know, they, 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 like, like I was talking about, you know, one, one uh, dad that I know at, you know, at, a, at, at my daughter's school where, you know, he's like kind of, he's kind of in that, well, you know, the both sides kind of do it camp. Okay. Well then, you know, how do we, how do we draw that person out into a conversation that, you know, that hopefully is a little illuminating over the course of time. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about people who are like, yeah, white supremacy is the way talk me down. We're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah. So definitely, I would highly recommend it. Um, it was it, it got a better reaction than I even expected. So it, it struck a chord for sure. Carrie, in Congress uh, this week, we've been we've been the January 6th commission had a had a meeting to basically hold to vote to hold Mark Meadows in contempt. But in that meeting, uh, Liz Cheney read a bunch of text messages from key Fox News personalities and, and some undisclosed Congress people. And to Don Mark Jr. Meadows. Don Jr. And Don Jr. And, and a couple of things sort of have emerged from that. Uh, the first one is a point you made that it's actually an excellent point that Liz Cheney, like she's an evil genius and she's <laughs> she is horrible. And I'm so glad she is on our side on this one issue because there's not a single Democrat that would be managing this investigation and getting as much attention for it in, in the good way it has. There's no Democrat gotta, that could have pulled it off. I got to tell you, it you know, it's so hard to say because her politics overall are abhorrent to me. Right. Like, I, I just can't I don't agree with her on a single thing except that. 
Donald Trump is responsible for largely responsible. Not he's not the only person responsible, but he's largely responsible for inspiring the January 6th attack on the Capitol that killed people, that injured tons, that caused you know that caused trauma nationwide. As long as as well as you know PTSD for a lot of those people. I agree with her on that. And, you know, she on this commission, there, there is no doubt in my mind that if Democrats had been left to their own devices, and I'm not dissing Democrats overall. Democrats, you know, I'm one of them. We do a lot of good. But she has a killer instinct that I think that Democrats wouldn't be wielding their power in the same way on that January 6th commission absent her. And she also, as you pointed out, brings, you know, a lot of legitimacy to the, you know, to the commission, maybe not in the eyes of Trumpers, but in the eyes of a lot of Republicans, you know, Dick Cheney was a hero. I don't know. <laughs> and, and, you know, as much as, you know, you're right. We shouldn't so much dump on Democrats, you know, for all the failings. I don't think the press lets Democrats be as aggressive as Liz Cheney is being. They, for, she's a Republican. She's given special treatment. They're allowed to be assholes. Like Democrats are not allowed for whatever. I mean, we're seeing it right now every single day, the way they're talking about Joe Biden and and continuing to both sides, the Republican effort to destroy our democracy with (laughs) our attempt to get people more health care and universal pre-K. I mean, it's, it's patently absurd, but there's something about like if that was if I was Bernie Thompson doing what Liz Cheney is doing, the press would be like they would either ignore it. They would say it was a partisan. You know, they would they would they would repeat Trumpian talking points that it's a partisan witch hunt, they would, all those things. And for whatever reason, because Liz Cheney said Republican, she gets to be that aggressive. And it makes me a little sad that we don't get to bottle that up and use it for ourselves all the time. You know, because it's know really we, effective. Yeah. You know what we need it on? We need it for we need to if we could bottle that up and, and put that energy somewhere, I would put it all into next year on voting rights personally. Like getting something passed that helps helps insulate our democracy from what Republicans are trying to do across the nations in Republican controlled states. Like I would harness whatever I could of her killer instinct and put it into that effort. And unfortunately, this is where her, you know, she's her um uh oh <laughs> sorry, I'm about I I think I'm about to have an intruder. I think I should probably lock the door. Otherwise, <laughs> hold on. Hold on one second. Yeah. So I will I will I will add that the other thing that has come out this this week is just how real the Republican effort to overturn the election was. It wasn't some random protest that turned into a mob that stormed the Capitol. It wasn't just a random memo from some crank, you know law professors saying, oh, you can subvert the Constitution and declare that, you know, Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania, Michigan votes don't matter. Uh, Like that was all. And you think, okay, these are happening sort of independently. Now you realize there was an actual serious, real effort. Mark Meadows had a PowerPoint presentation. He literally put this in a PowerPoint presentation, how we overturn our democracy. You might as well title it that. And just how close we were to actually having a serious uh, constitutional crisis, if not the outright demise of our democracy. And I cannot believe it's not getting more, I don't know, you know, 24-7 coverage. The media attention... The media attention has been almost nothing. And I think that's part of what Liz Cheney is, is, is helping, right? You know, she, she gets on, she, she, during the committee meeting last night, just starts reading the texts that were sent to Mark Meadows by these other people. And she reads them aloud. And of course, then the, then the media has a, has trouble ignoring them. Right. But like, can I ask you a question? At what point did Mark Meadows realize that the materials he turned over to the committee were going to be a problem for him. That PowerPoint <laughs> explaining how we overturned democracy, the text from John, du- John Don Jr., who, you know, box of rocks Don Jr., is like 
this among the sadist text saying we need an oval office address this has gone too far and gotten out of hand you know and then you're like at what point did mark meadows think i don't know if this is gonna be good for me and if donald trump is gonna like this just tell me do you know when because he was cooperating he handed over all these materials that are now like you know explosive materials and then he, now he's like okay now i'm running back to my bunker I think I know when it was. It was when the excerpts of his book came out and we found out that Donald Trump was COVID positive during that debate. And that's why he showed up late, refused to get tested and all those things. And Trump got angry. And Meadows, who apparently is also dumb as a rock, you wouldn't think it. I mean, he doesn't seem dumb dumb as a rock. Realized, oh, crap. Maybe this book <laughs> might not have been a great idea. And he was grilled over it in, in conservative media. And at that point, everybody said, oh, and he's also helping out the January 6th commission. And he had to back out. But not, I mean, at this point, do we even need his testimony? I mean, all his communications, the documents, the PowerPoint presentation, all those pieces that sort of paint a picture of what was happening in the White House they're already out there, and Mark Meadows can't declare executive privilege because, one, he already released it, and, two, the stuff that he has and he wrote about in his book. So he is kind of SOL, and I think it's freaking hilarious. Let me make one very short point before we get to our guest because I think he's about ready, it looks like. Yeah, he is. So he I is. just want people to keep an eye on this, right? What we are watching now is I'm sure what the McConnell wing of the party hopes is a huge comeuppance for the Trump wing of the party. And just today, an hour, a couple hours ago, we saw Mitch McConnell, minority leader Mitch McConnell, get asked if he had been one of the people who was in touch with Meadows during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And he was all too glad to say, no, I wasn't. But it is going to be interesting. It is going to be interesting to see who is revealed, you know, what is revealed in the, you know, by the commission. So he, he like, you know, with this like glum face, but, you know, inside he was doing a happy dance about that. Like he, he wants that commission to take down, you know, like the, all of the idiots who are now running the House caucus, right? The the House GOP caucus. I don't know if he has much love for Kevin McCarthy. I don't really know. But like Kevin McCarthy's just gone down that route, down, gone down that conspiracy rabbit hole. And, you know, there are some people in his own caucus who he wouldn't mind probably if they got in a little trouble. Ted Cruz, you know, uh, Josh Hawley. I mean, who knows? Mike Lee. Like, who? you know, were these people in contact, you know? So, so just watch because the McConnell wing of the party wants the Trump wing of the party to get in trouble with this January 6th commission and wouldn't, be mind, wouldn't mind at all if some of them got knocked off politi- politically. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. All right, Carrie, let's bring on our guest today. Our guest today is Brian Fallon. He's executive director of Demand Justice. He is a former press secretary for uh, then candidate Hillary Clinton in 2016. Among, you know, he was in the Senate. I think it was Harry Reid, right? So a veteran of democratic politics and now focused on reforming the court. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. It's always flattered to be on the program. So, Brian, we we last talked back in March. And at the time you made a you, you know, you said something along the lines of I hope that Democrats in, in D.C. start treating court reform the way they're treating H.R. one voting reform. Now, nine months later, it turns out that they didn't even treat H.R. 1 the way, <laughs> the way they should have treated H.R. 1 <laughs> as an existential threat to our democracy. How about court reform? How's that been faring in, in Congress, in your opinion? Um, so it's making slow but steady progress. Not as fast as anybody would like, but uh, we are making inroads. Just in the last year, um, we've had sort of two parallel tracks happening on this issue. One has been this court reform commission that President Biden set up. As you'll recall, in the final weeks of the 2020 campaign, when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, there was a huge uprising calling for court expansion. And Joe Biden tried to quell those calls by saying that he would appoint a commission that would take 180 days to study the issue. Those of us that have been advocating on this issue knew that that commission was a place to sort of 
stash this conversation and try to table it. Um, so we never really viewed it as a venue where any progress was going to happen. They weren't going to put you on that commission, were they? I would have been flattered to be asked, but uh, they weren't interested in having any outspoken advocates for uh, actual true reform proposals on the commission. That was, so, a, that was a lot more generous description than what Ellie Mistel had when he came on was talking about from the nation. The, the Supreme Court reporter from the nation was he pretty he pretty har- harshly dissed that commission. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I think, you, you know, the, the commission was co-chaired. The commission was co-chaired by Bob Bauer, who's a very you know well-regarded lawyer in Washington, former White House counsel uh, under Barack Obama. And I think and he's written about structural reform of the courts for years. And so I think he viewed this as sort of an intellectual feast. And so. So he surrounded himself with all these academics and constitutional lawyers, and uh, it was like a faculty lounge discussion, and they ended up producing a glorified book report. Um, so the commission has finally concluded its work this month, and um, the kindest thing to be said about it is that it's over, um, <laughs> and, and, and that it has, pro- it, has produ- it has produced some people, quite surprisingly, it has produced some people who said that the process of considering these issues over the last six months have actually caused them to come out for adding seats. So Larry Tribe, a Harvard Law professor, wrote an op-ed last week with Nancy Gertner, a former federal judge from Boston. Both of them served on the commission. Both of them said that they opposed adding seats at the outset of this process, but the consideration over the last six months has caused them to see this as the only option. I think there's going to be more people from the commission that come out in their individual capacities and say the same thing. Um, but any, in any case, the commission's been happening. But while most of the media attention has been on that, There have been advocacy organizations like Demand Justice that have been working this issue to try to garner co-sponsors for legislation that's been introduced in both the House and the Senate called the Judiciary Act, which adds four seats to the Supreme Court. And we've made slow but steady progress. Pretty much every week we're getting two or three new lawmakers signing on to the bill. Um, Mondaire Jones, Hank Johnson, and Jerry Nadler are the main sponsors in the House. In the Senate, Ed Markey introduced the bill. And we've got about 50 co-sponsors now in the House We've been organizing constituent meetings. It's a very laborious, time-intensive process. Wait, wait, wait. 50, that, that includes Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. No, no, oh, no, 50 in the house. 50 oh, in the house. 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 representative. I, I almost got excited. Oh. Yeah, we're a long way from having 50 oh, in the Senate. We got oh. about 25% of what we okay. in the house. Okay? okay, so I said slow but steady, didn't I? But but a lot of of big progressive organizations have also come out for it in recent months. SEIU just last month endorsed adding seats. They have a huge membership, obviously, but they have huge sway in Democratic politics. Um, Whenever you, you know, Democratic politicians are running in open primaries, you know, the SEIU is an endorsement that's heavily courted. And I think that's a sign of what's to come from other big labor organizations. I think more repro organizations are getting into the game. And the Supreme Court term, unfortunately, this this year, the cases that are on the docket, I think are going to be produce just more of an uh, outpouring of support for previously seen radical ideas like adding seats, just because in the absence of that, we have no good solution to this runaway 6-3 Supreme Court. So to answer your question, you know, we're we're better, we're in a better place than we were when I last spoke to you, um, but we need to be making progress even faster. And I think come June, we'll probably see a quantum leap in the amount of support, unfortunately, because of rulings and cases like the ones that are coming up on abortion and and, uh, guns and, and so many other issues. Right. Let, let me just say it's it's really interesting to me to hear that hear you say that SEIU has come uh, out for it, because I feel like, you know, what you're talking about here is this like intellectual feast about the presidential commission. It's all this sort of high minded. Well, what would you know, this back and forth sort of like, you know, tangential and, and intangible discussion. Right. Well, when SEIU comes out for it, that changes who's having the conversation. You don't just have a bunch of intellectuals from Harvard wondering what this would do to the Supreme Court. You got boots on the ground. And that's just a totally different deal as far as I'm concerned. So that that sounds great to me. Um, I have to wonder, I have to wonder, I see some of the, you know, last week's oral arguments on the Mississippi abortion ban at the Supreme Court. I did see some uh, stories, I think in particular in the Washington Post about the notion that some senators were getting, you know, more open to the idea of court reform, you know, potentially adding seats, maybe term limits, whatever. Um, it, have you seen a difference because of that uh, partic- that oral argument, which was kind of like off the rails? 
Yeah, so that argument was definitely off the rails, and and the we started to see movement in September when the Supreme Court first let the Texas law stand. And so you have these two abortion cases that are before the court, this one in Texas and this one um, that they'll probably not decide until June concerning the 15-week ban in, in, in Mississippi, which a lot of observers think is going to be the case that produces uh, an outright overturning of Roe. Um, but starting in September, when they first let the Texas law stand while they continued to weigh the merits of that of the challenge to that law, um, you had Tina Smith, senator from Minnesota, um, who in a previous life, before she became an elected official, was a VP level of senior official at Planned Parenthood, and so considers herself and is uh, you know, one of the foremost champions of reproductive rights in either chamber of Congress. And she had been somebody that prior to that ruling in September that let the Texas law stand had taken, you know, some fairly bold positions, for instance, saying we should get rid of the filibuster in order to codify Roe v. Wade, but saw that we needed to go even further than that because this court is going to be hostile to even a, you know, Women's Health Protection Act type statute that seeks to codify Roe. Um, If this court is so hell bent on, you know, gutting the Roe precedent, the Casey precedent, what makes us think? that they would show any respect for a congressionally passed statute that seeks to codify Roe at the federal level. They will gut that too. And so Tina Smith said, I'm, I, I got to go even further. If I'm going to be a true champion of reproductive rights, I need to not just support getting rid of the filibuster in order to try to enshrine Roe into law at the federal level, but I need to do something that frontally deals with the makeup of the court itself because the court has become an existential threat to reproductive rights. And I think that more, if when Tina Smith makes that decision, I think other, not just women senators, but all senators in the Democratic caucus that consider themselves champions of reproductive rights are going to have to undergo that same mental process and will arrive at the same conclusion. And it's just a matter, I think, of when, not if. I, I hope that more of them will conclude this before June when the Dobbs ruling comes out. But certainly by the time the Dobbs ruling comes out, I don't think that those people can go around and, and simply call for, you know, hey, we need to pass a, a you know, a, a WIPA type statute. I think they're going to have to have a proposal to reform the court itself. And I think, Carrie, that that mental process is going to take place across issues because there's also a big gun safety case. And so Chris Murphy, who we all know as a big yeah. champion of, of, you know, gun safety measures, um, he not just we don't need just background checks. We don't just need limits on assault weapons. We need a solution that deals with the court because the court itself is an existential threat to common sense gun safety measures and on and on environmental issues. You know, I, so I think that there's going to be a consensus. It's just a matter of, you know, when, not if. Uh, can you just remind me? I'm sorry if you told us this, but how many senators do we have on board for some type of you know serious court reform? So there's two, there's just two sponsors of the Judiciary Act in the Senate. It is Markey okay. and it is Tina Smith. Now you've okay. had other senators, including in that political story that you referenced, express openness to the idea. And we've been in touch with one Senate office in the last week that I know is going to endorse the Judiciary Act in the coming days. So I do think that momentum is afoot, but, you know, it, unfortunately it's happening, you know, uh, a lot slower than we think uh, it should happen. But if you look at this, you know, court reform is a relatively new idea. Ellie Mistal, who you referenced from The Nation, you know, is one of the people that first put this idea out there on the table. And he was writing op-eds about this three or four years ago. And to go from, you know, people like Ellie writing about it to having a bill in Congress that has 50 co-sponsors in the House that has the endorsement of SEIU, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that this is moving rather fast by Washington standards, not as fast as we would like, but relatively quickly by Washington standards. I liken it to pretty much where we were on filibuster about two years ago. Two years ago, you know, Elizabeth Warren was talking about it in the Democratic presidential primary, but it did not have consensus support across the Democratic caucus. And now we're pretty much two votes shy of being able to change the rules. So I think that we're about, you know, in that place where filibuster was two years ago. So, the, you know, looking at the two abortion cases, one is Mississippi. That's a standard, you know, I think, what, 16 weeks or whatever, right? That, that, and that's probably going to um, pass Supreme Court muster. The Texas one, though, has a sort of interesting wrinkle that I think has deeper consequences than just uh, the issue of abortions. This idea that you can craft a state statute in a way that evades court supervision, not the word, um, scrutiny, scrutiny. 
And now you have Gavin Newsom in California saying like, all right, we're going to test the Supreme Court. We're going to do that with guns. We're going to give people a private right to sue gun owners, gun manufacturers. The law's not written yet. The bill's not written yet. So I don't know exactly what they're going to put in it. But the idea is sort of to like challenge the court. Now, a lot of us, do we really worry that this court's going to worry about being hypocritical? Of course not, right? I mean, they're, they're going to find an excuse why it's okay to do that on abortion and not okay to do that with guns. But you have this idea endorsed by at least four justices on the court that you can write a law in a way that evades judicial scrutiny. Two, you had this other case, and the name escapes me at the moment, but could gut the ability of regulatory agencies in the federal government to promulgate rules based on legislation passed by Congress. It would basically say that unless Congress gives you explicit right to do something, you cannot do it. You basically have a court that is aiming to not just make the federal government ungovernable, but also allow states to pass laws that evade constitutional scrutiny. This is, Carrie, was it you who said this court is run amok? It does feel like this court is run amok. I didn't say that, but I'll take credit. I I like it. And I'm, I, I, I would like to associate myself with it. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Are those, is that something that's sort of generating concern in the people you're talking to? Or are they more focused on sort of the big ticket abortion issue and guns? Because th- these may have even deeper consequences to our ability to run our government. So this goes to uh, an issue that Carrie hit on before. You know, when, whenever you're dealing with this issue of the courts and judicial reform, you're really sort of talking to two audiences. You have like these legal elites that uh, obsess about the Supreme Court and very closely follow all of the machinations that are so opaque to the average uh, member of the public. And they have very considered opinions about what should happen. And, you know, they largely think that ideas like expansion are, are too fringe. And um, in the Democratic Party, we tend to outsource what we think should happen on the courts to a lot of these legal elites and establishment thinkers that either, you know, litigate uh, at white shoe law firms or serve uh, uh, in constitutional um, uh, law professorships at big institutions like Harvard and Yale. Um, so you have that audience. And when you have regular grassroots activists on the left that have, you know, very strongly held positions on issues like climate change and abortion, but always feel a little bit out of their depth and, and, and aren't quite sure if, you know, um, it's, it, it, is the Supreme Court full of shit or, you know, sh- it, was there some reason that this case had to be decided this way? And uh, we try to speak to both audiences at the same time. And what's happening in answer to your question is that the way that the Supreme Court is headed right now is convincing even the legal elites, the people that are most invested in preserving the status quo with respect to the Supreme Court. It's causing even them to step back and say, whoa, maybe these activists and advocacy organizations that are arguing for ideas like adding seats, maybe they're right. Because at this point, even John Roberts is calling out his own colleagues and the conservative wing of the Supreme Court, telling them, you know, John Roberts said in in in, in his dissent in And the uh, Texas ruling that came out the other day, that it shouldn't matter what you think about the underlying statute. We as the Supreme Court have an interest in upholding the idea that these things have to undergo judicial review. Like We shouldn't be complicit in allowing states or give states an incentive to craft statutes that are intended to evade, you know, any accountability. And he's alone on the right. Uh, on the, uh, among the six conservative justices and thinking that the rest of them are entirely outcome based, are entirely ends justify the means. And so I love what Gavin Newsom is doing in California. And I think they should, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Let's take that same legal theory and apply it to guns. Mark Elias has called for doing it with respect to voting rights. Hey, let's create a, you know, private right of action so that you could bring civil lawsuits about uh, voter suppression and and try to evade judicial review um, in uh, on that regard. Oh, my God, um, that is well, genius. Sorry. But, we should, <laughs> but we should expect that the Supreme Court, because they're outcome oriented, because the ends justify the means that they'll come up with some basis to say that, hey, our reasoning only applies to abortion. It doesn't apply to guns or voting rights. And so then we'll be still left with the question about what is to be done about the Supreme Court itself and can we structurally reform it by adding seats or are we going to continue to just try to come up with more novel legal theories uh, as if we can litigate our way out of this problem. Um, But like I said, I think more and more of the 
of the legal elite types are increasingly coming to the conclusion that these Supreme Court conservatives can't be reasoned with. And uh, and that it's time to entertain, you know, previously ideas that were previously thought of as, you know, radical, like adding seats. Yeah. I, I, I was listening. I didn't listen to all the oral, oral arguments on the Mississippi abortion ban, um, but I did listen to a couple podcasts about it with people who are much, much smarter than I am about um, abortion law and legal issues, et cetera. And they just said that, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts just feels like he's antiquated at this point. He just like, you know, just all of his right wing, his his right uh, right wing to me, but right wing colleagues are like blowing past him as he's trying to say, hey, we could do something intermediate here, which would still be in a front to row, but would be, you know, let's go to 15 weeks. And he's trying to offer this sort of moderate route, which frankly would probably be better for, you know, I. I just don't think they seem to have any idea the 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 extreme right on the court now. Uh, ha- I don't think which I count as is at least five of the justices, maybe six, but five of the justices. Right. The, I just don't think they have any idea where how these things are going to play out politically. And it seems to me, I mean, maybe you can speak to this. Maybe there's a silver lining in how radical they've become how quickly. Because because when you get the boots on the ground plus the, you know, sort of elite class of thinkers and things like that headed the same direction, that's when you got a chance. And I think if they moved along the pace that Chief Justice Roberts is, was trying to go on abortion and other issues, you know, then then maybe you 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 buy yourself a decade before. Holy crap. You know, the whole place is in shambles. I don't know if you can just weigh no, in. You've, you've, you've put your thumb on uh, absolutely the right dynamic that's going on here, because uh, a lot of people, I think, mistake what's happening. They look at you know, some writings of John Roberts and the fact that he sides with the liberals on some of these questions. And they say, oh, you know, Roberts is trying to strike this moderate path. And to me, that's baloney. You know, Roberts is not a moderate. Roberts is as conservative and wants America to look the same way that Alito wants it to look. Roberts just cares about the court's reputation a little bit more than Alito does. And so he wants to go slower. He still wants to get to the same destination. He'd still like to see Roe overturn. He'd just like to do it in multiple steps as opposed to doing it all at once so that you can like turn the temperature on the frog in the boiling pot up a little bit slower. Um, But he still wants to boil the frog just like Alito does. He would just do it in a little bit more clever, better disguised way. And so he's not ideologically moderate compared to his you know, colleagues like Alito and Clarence Thomas. He's just a little bit more mindful of how the politics plays. But some people try to act like, you know, he's, he's the centrist on the court and he's not. The issue is, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Does Sam, you said um, that they might not know how the politics plays. I think some of them might. I think Clarence Thomas and like Sam Alito I think guys like that, they have like an own the libs mentality, uh, you know, which you wouldn't think that Supreme Court justices should like have the same sort of approach to things as Tucker Carlson. And uh, but I think they think about it in the same terms. I think that they think that they're in like this existential struggle against, you know, the left and that they want to see people, you know, upset. They, they, They like the idea that that this will have a backlash and they almost are so self-righteous about their own convictions that they won't be bothered by that. I think I, I actually think that's true. I, I think I was thinking of someone like Amy Coney Barrett, newest justice, going to, you know, joining Mitch McConnell on the stage in Kentucky to say, we're, we're, we're really high-minded thinkers and, you know, <laughs> adhering to the law and just interpreting the Constitution. And we're not politically motivated. I mean, it seems like Kavanaugh and Coney and uh, Amy Coney Barrett are just sort of like, I, I don't know, out there in terms of. Well, I think a lot of people were surprised by both Kavanaugh and Barrett and how outspoken they were during the oral arguments in the Dobbs case, where they basically showed their cards about their willingness to overturn <laughs> Roe outright. I mean, you had Kavanaugh musing 
about the idea that it would be a neutral position for the court to take to let states decide whether to ban abortion or not. And you had Amy Coney Barrett sort of like, uh, you know, saying aloud that it wouldn't be an undue burden for women to have to carry babies to term because adoption's always an option. And I think people thought that there'd be a little bit more guile and that they would, you know, um, maybe take the Roberts approach of trying to masquerade their position on this a little bit more. But I think what it revealed is that despite appearances like that speech that Amy Coney Barrett gave, you know, at McConnell's uh, Academic Center in Kentucky, that they're all in on this project, that they understand that, you know, the reason that they are on the court and not other people is because they were viewed as sufficiently loyal to the mission that has been, you know, a 40 year project of the of the hard right when it comes to, you know, legal conservatives. And like we've said before, it's been a combination of legal elites on the far right in the form of the Federalist Society, and then the foot soldiers at a grassroots level in the form of evangelical voters that care deeply about the abortion issue and Second Amendment folks uh, that care deeply and vote on the on the gun issue. They've mobilized people at a mass in a mass way on those two issues, combining it with all these crazy cockamamie far right legal theories um, that have emanated out of the federal society. And that's what we've got to match. We've got to get, we've got to get the so-called progressive legal elites in, in the academy and the folks that are on MSNBC all the time analyzing, you know, legal developments um, aligned with the SEIUs of the world and the move-ons of the world. And I think we're getting there uh, because all those groups you know, support all those grassroots groups, all those advocacy groups support it, and more and more of those legal elites on on the left are supporting it too. So you talked about sort of this, you know, things are going to be really upended next June when the court starts releasing these decisions, including final decisions. I actually wouldn't be surprised if Texas gets booted just because it's such a, the, the facts are just not very, you know, what Gavin Newsom's doing in California. Like they may say, you know what, we're not going to open up that can of worms after all when Mississippi is such a perfect vehicle to, to do what they want to do. And so that's going to happen. Um, we're going to have a raft of decisions. It's going to create that impetus right before the election. Is there any chance that there may be any movement towards reform before the election? I mean, understanding that mansion and the filibuster and cinema, it's, it's probably tough. Things are going to look tough for us electorally next year, just if history is any guide and looking at at Joe Biden's poor approval ratings right now. Um, It's looking like a tough year. Is there any chance this happens without us winning bigger majorities in Congress, which is a really tough task? So I think what is a, I mean, a group like mine is certainly working towards that goal. And every day we wake up trying to figure out how we can build more support more quickly for adding seats. Because I do, I am among those people that think that we're dealing with a finite window of time where we control the House, the Senate, and the White House and have the ability to pass things. And with all the gerrymandering that's happening, I worry post-2022 when the next time Democrats will be able to pass anything is. And so I do view this as sort of like an act now or miss your moment type window. Um, So we are working every day to try to build support so that we could get this, you know, um, at a consensus level of support in the Democratic Party and time to do something before 2022. Um, but I'll be honest about where I think it sits right now. Where I think it sits right now, it's it's not caught up to all the other dem- democracy-preserving measures that are that do have consensus support and are just waiting for Cinema and Mansion to get in line before we can pass them. So, you know, I wanted when they reintroduced HR1 at the beginning of Congress, I wanted some kind of court reform placeholder, at least to be part of that omnibus, you know, HR1 bill. And the issue had just not ripened well enough for Pelosi and and the House leadership to view that as belonging in the package. And I think that the the next reasonable step that we should set for ourselves, those of us that are, you know, part of this, doing this work, is to catch up so that we're in the same basket as filibuster reform, D.C. statehood, same-day voting, um, all these other issues that are further along in terms of politically ripening. Um, Court expansion is still sort of being kept at arm's length, thanks in part to Joe Biden's commission. You know, we do a lot of constituent meetings, and most of the time, if people don't 
you know, say yes. A lot of times people say yes to us because they just haven't had the issue surface to them. And when we confront them, you know, they're members of the Progressive Caucus. They say sure. And they sign on to the bill. And we produce quite a few co-sponsorships that way. But a lot of times with Democratic members, what the answer that we get is, well, I don't want to get out in front of the president's commission. So the so the commission has served to sort of give. Oh, point. yeah, yeah. It's sort of yeah. created political space for Biden to not have to take a position, but it's uh, also caused a lot of members of Congress to be able to sort of like isolate the issue. And that's that, why you're so excited. That, it's done. That's why. Well, I'm, that's why yeah, right. Literally, and now we're going back to all these offices and saying, all right, time's up. The commission's work is done. What do you think? Where are you on this? And, and that's exactly why they do a commission like that. I mean, everybody who's been in Washington long enough and it doesn't take more than like a few months realizes that when there's a blue ribbon commission announced, that is a stall tactic and it freezes the politics of it to some extent. But anyway, please didn't go even ahead. disguise it well, to be honest, because they said at the beginning, oh, we don't want this to take any positions and make any recommendations. And then they put Federalist Society members on the commission. So it was sort of like doomed from the beginning. But it has served to allow members of Congress to punt. And now I would like to get it to the point where you can't be for filibuster elimination and not also be for this. You can't be for, um, you know, D.C. statehood, voting rights, John Lewis. You can't be for all these other bills and then not have a plan to deal with the Supreme Court, because otherwise the Supreme Court will gut all those other ideas that you're going to pat yourself on the back for passing. Carrie, we have time I, for one more question, so I'll, I'll let you. Well, I, I feel a burning question, which is, and it's not, it's, it's not 100% directly related to your mission, but I do think it's very, very uh, much a part of it, which is you've, pr- I'm sure, taken in you know, a bunch of stories about how this uh, Mississippi ruling is going to land. And it looks exceedingly clear that it's going to be at least a partial overturning of Roe, a gutting of Roe, if not a full overturning of Roe, right? So do you think people are overselling or underselling how that could shift the political landscape once that decision lands in June of next year? So I think that uh, it has the potential to really mobilize people in a way that the court has not succeeded in doing for decades. But I don't think it's inevitable. I think it has the potential because we poll voters on these issues all the time. For as long as we've existed, you know, we're in the field quite often to test it, we mostly measure support for the court among Democrats and openness to ideas like adding seats among Democrats because we're trying to mobilize Democrats on this issue. But we also test, you know, um, all registered voters frequently. And even during the height of the Kavanaugh battle and the Amy Coney Barrett battle, um, people would tell us that they strongly supported the preservation of Roe and that they would strongly oppose any justice that would be open to overturning Roe. But then when you ask them, straight up to predict, do you think, do you, how fearful are you that, that Roe could be overturned? The same people that, you know, have strong feelings about keeping Roe the law of the land would tell you that they don't think that there's a serious threat to it. They thought that it was a lot of crying wolf happening during all those confirmation fights. And so I think if the, if, if the court actually acts in a way that truly explicitly overturns Roe, I think all that support that is right now below the surface, but not really galvanized, will finally galvanize. Like, I don't think it will just be Planned Parenthood activists out in the street. I think you'll have the potential for independents to be outraged because this is no longer, you know, something that's going to just be felt in Texas or Mississippi. You know, you have you have trigger laws in place, you know, from centuries ago, where if Roe falls, you know, it re-kicks in an abortion ban. And that's true in like a state like Wisconsin, a state that Joe Biden won. So that's suddenly going to be a relevant issue in a very purplish state. Um, so I think that the potential is there for people to be animated. But I think whether that translates to anything real and any, and any true change on this issue is going to be about whether we can get shows of political courage from elected Democrats to actually, you know, respond 
in a proportionate way to an announcement like that. I don't think Democrats, elected Democrats, can just come out in the aftermath of a ruling gutting row and say, basically, please donate to the DSCC, help us win back the Senate, and yada, 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 we'll protect abortion rights. What do you want to see immediately? What do you, what, I mean, do you want to, what do you want? You want an address from President Biden in the White House? What do you, what I want to see, I think, I think it would be good politics. There's a rich history in this country of presidents taking on runaway Supreme Courts that take unpopular stands on issues. Abraham Lincoln did it in the 1860s. Everybody invokes FDR and the court expansion plan that he floated that wasn't ultimately passed. But the the campaign that he waged against the court did carry the day in terms of like public opinion. Um, but even before him, Abraham Lincoln went to battle with the Supreme Court over, you know, the conducting of the Civil War. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, when he when he did his third party run, um, one of his big causes was taking on the corporate capture of the Supreme Court in that Lochner era in the early part of the, in that Gilded Age. And so there's a rich history of taking on the court for being captured by partisan or corporate interests. And I think if jo- if Joe Biden is you know reacting to a ruling that guts Roe, if he's reacting to a ruling that says that you know concealed carry permits have to be honored in Times Square in New York, Texans with concealed carry permits should be able to pack heat and walk in Times Square, and that the EPA is no longer able to regulate greenhouse gases. Those are all winning issues that he should you know, inveigh yeah. against the Supreme Court itself and wage a public. Well, Joe, Joe Biden in general needs villains. He needs foils. He needs villains. <laughs> and, and the Supreme Court will be a great one. And so I want him to take it on. I want him to ultimately support adding seats. But I want I want the, the statement he put out the other day in response to the Dobbs argument was milquetoast. It was blather. Yeah. And he was rightly criticized for it. I want to see him get animated and take on the court as an institution. Brian, I know you have a hard stop. So very, very quickly, how can our listeners and viewers help you in your mission to expand the court? A very straightforward way. So like I said before, we are organizing constituent meetings. They're all happening virtual now because most um, meeting, most uh, congressional offices are not taking in-person meetings. But it makes it actually easier for constituents to, to directly bring issues to their elected members of Congress because you just have to hop on a Zoom and uh, you can meet with the chief of staff. You can meet with the legislative director for these members of the House and members of the Senate. And so if you go to demandjustice.org and sign up with us, we will route you into a constituent meeting with your Democratic House member or your Democratic senator. And like I said, we've had over 90 of these meetings with over like 1,300 people taking part in them. And we've had over a dozen instances where right after having the constituent meeting, we get the lawmakers signed on to the bill. So literally just participating in a 45-minute Zoom with your member of Congress could help us add another member that supports the Judiciary Act. So that's the most concrete way that people can get involved. Holy shit, that's really cool. And I haven't seen anybody else do that. So uh, kudos to you guys for uh, maybe even pioneering that. Brian Fallon, Demand Justice, uh, demandjustice.org. Thank you so very much for joining us. And hopefully we'll check in next year and maybe things will be moving even more. Thanks so much. Thanks again for having me on, for continuing to spotlight this issue. It's really important that the progressive movement care about this. Thank you. Carrie, um, I love the idea of the Supreme Court as a villain, and I know I've been talking about Joe Biden needing a villain. And, and I don't know if Donald Trump really works as a villain in the midterm. It's, it's, he's the best villain for me, right? But I, they're not trying to get my vote, right? How, how do we, my vote's already happening. It, it's how do you motivate people who may not vote or those college-educated suburban white women who, you know, looks like they defected in Virginia and in New Jersey and uh, um, we need them back next year what do you have any idea and i know this is like on the spot because it just sort of spurred my mind like what would be good villains for joe biden don't worry i have all i have all the answers so just sit back grab your popcorn no i'm just kidding what like i do think there's two sides to this equation right one is what brian was talking about we need the fight right we also need the villain but we need the fight we need to see this white house fighting for voting rights next year. We have to get out from under this build back better. I don't know. Are we going to, you know, pass it, whatever. Ugh. Like I am honestly, and this is going to sound. Don't mention as a villain is not a no, great villain for us. No, to not year. a great villain at all. And I honestly am ready to just see, I, I want build back better so badly, but if it means another two or three months that get us into next year, that take away momentum from trying to get voting rights passed, et cetera. 
then we got to we got to fish or cut bait soon on that thing really soon, like this month or next month. And that's it. Um, so anyway, so we need a, the fight because we need to see Democrats fighting for things. We need to see them fighting for voting rights. We need to see them um, fighting for abortion rights. We need to see them fighting for gun control. And we don't see enough of that fight. The Supreme Court is a great villain, but I think what it all fits under is the idea of extremism, that Republicans have gone down this extremist path, right? Almost every position they have right now is a, you know, one third to maybe tops 40% of voters believe in it. So you can, you can say, we don't have to say, I mean, it is, it's Trump extremism, but you don't have to try to apply Trump to everything. You pick what everyone, whatever any candidate's Achilles heel is on the extremum, uh, extremism, you know, spectrum of things, right? Or array of things being, um, you know, abortion, guns, democracy, Supreme Court, etc. So I, I think that I think that you can make all of these things fit under the umbrella of extremism. I oftentimes have started referring to the Supreme Court as the extreme court. Um, I constantly talk about GOP extremism. The moderation in G- in in GOP land is gone. Uh, if you want, I mean, I think they're what? literally all retiring. They're literally yeah. all retiring because they're gone. And, and if you look at people who you think might be the moderating forces, like McConnell, who has done is plenty on his own to destroy our democracy, right? But he's an establishment figure who like GOP donors think of as like the establishment guy. He's endorsing Herschel Walker. He's not going to put out a, an agenda he's announced for next year before ne- before next November. There's going to be no Senate, Senate GOP agenda. I mean, th- then you look at McCarthy. McCarthy's handed over his entire caucus to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobert or Bobert or whatever, however you say her name. And then you look at um, you look at John Chief Justice John Roberts on the court. He's trying to moderate how fast they get to an extremist end. Well, you know what? He's he practically seemed irrelevant during that those uh, abortion arguments uh, last week. So if you look at sort of the entirety of the Republican Party, anyone who was supposed to be, I mean, look at Fox News, Chris Wallace, who was the only guy who used to ask any reasonable questions or any hard questions of of any political figures, Republican political figures. He just left Fox News because Tucker Carlson has gone down the right supremacy and, you know, great replacement route. And he's going to be on some like online streaming thing. He's not even going to an equally prestigious elevated job. I mean, it's very clear. He was, he was shoved out the door in some way. He shoved out the door or just could like no longer could look at himself in the mirror anymore. And you know what, frankly, congrats to him. If you can no longer look in the mirror because you think, you know, Fox news has become too much of a cesspool to stay there. So, so I guess to answer your question, I think that you can't, you don't have to point to Trump. I think you can point to Trump extremism all over the place. And you can say, look at how, how extreme the Supreme Court has gotten. Look at how extreme House Republicans have gotten. Look at how extreme the Senate GOP candidates are. Look at, you know, and you use, you fit all of these different issues under the umbrella of extremism. And you fight like hell against the extremism that is the Republican Party. Um, and you can do it on, on multiple fronts. Um, so, but we gotta have that fight, man. We gotta convince. I mean, let me just say one other thing. I know, I know, I just keep talking, but let me say one other thing. I was listening to Cornell Belcher on Pod Save America, and he made the point that, you know, in terms of polling, he was. Wait, who like, is he? Uh, oh, Cornell P- Belcher is a Democratic pollster who polled for Obama, the Obama White House, et cetera. I know you know who he is. <laughs> anyway, but, um, but yeah, for our listeners. And he was saying, look, you know, Biden's approval ratings are the way they are because he's ha- partly because he's had a double digit drop among Democrats, not independents. I mean, he has had a double. Di- he's had like a 10. I was looking at civics, right? Our polling outfit. And he's he's down like 13 or 14 points since passage of the American Rescue Plan 
with Democratic voters. He's down like 10 points with independents since passage of the American Rescue Plan. And they're probably left-leaning independents, too. Left-leaning independents, right? So we are losing. It's not like we've lost Republicans, you know? like They were never there. Like three points. They were never there. So we're losing our own people. He said, Cornell Belcher said, he is below 70% in his polling with African-Americans, so a job approval rating for Biden. He said oh, Barack Obama was never below 70% with African-Americans. I mean, that is the freaking bread and butter. That is the backbone of the Democratic Party. So if we're not winning those folks, if we're not winning people who want to like us and who voted for us, if we're not winning those folks, we are doing something extraordinarily wrong. And they need, they need to see a fight, I think. They need to see the fight. Yeah, and it's not a press release or a tweet. Like, actually doing the hard work of governing, even if you lose, like, show the fight. Show the fight. I mean, if Mansion and Cinema stand in the way, so be it. But at least you, 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 you fought and you said, it's not the Democratic Party. It's these two assholes. Help us win more. It's a tough year. I mean, things are, it's, it's <laughs> nobody's going to sugarcoat it here. Like, we're realists. But um, but yeah, fight means more than just say a couple words or one speech. It actually means on the ground work to get people mobile. I mean, we know Trump did it. Look, I mean, he 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 did a whole coup. He got people to storm the freaking Capitol. That's what not we're not asking for people to break the law <laughs> and mount an insurrection. Uh, we want to use lawful means uh, because we are law abiding lovers of democracy. So, hey, Carrie, we got a couple of minutes. I want to this is our last live broadcast of the year. I think we may do a, a rebroadcast next week. But so I just want to take a moment and, and I'll give you the chance to I just want to show a lot of gratitude for everybody that has had such an amazing impact on my life this year, my family, my coworkers, everybody at Daily Coast, listeners and readers, I love you all so much. We're, we're in this existential fight for our democracy, and I couldn't think of better people to have by my side than all of you. I'm grateful for, I have a wonderful partner. I have wonderful kids. You know, my son went to basic training this year. He's in the California National Guard. My daughter is a freshman in high school, and she just got promoted to the varsity debate team just a oh. month after she joined the debate club. I mean, she's impressive. <laughs> uh, That's you, impressive. You know she's going to be a great, like, I'm like, oh, no, she's going to argue for practice. I mean, it's already, she's a teenager at home, a 15-year-old, like, more arguing. But she's an amazing I can't believe you produced someone who's going to argue for things. Oh, my God. <laughs> who would have who predicted that? And so I'm just surrounded by these amazing, my, my friends, um, just by this amazing community. I'm so incredibly grateful for everything I have. And I, I don't take that for granted. And so I want to wish everybody a wonderful holiday season, a new year, and, uh, and really hoping that 2022 <laughs> is an upgrade from these pandemic years we've just 2020 and 2021 but uh i love everybody and so grateful to to be able to do what i do and i do it because of you guys carrie your turn oh boy well uh this is spontaneous but um i I mean i am super grateful for for all of the um you know all of the good fortune i have in my life health family friends who i would love to see more um you know the pandemic's been terrible in terms of that. Uh, but community, um, the Daily Coast readers, you know, we go back and forth in those comments, but um, I appreciate everyone who who reads our stuff, who takes it seriously, who engages, who brings their own their own ideas to the table, the news that they've been following, et cetera. Um, it's really an extraordinary community. Um, I want to say too, I you thank me almost every uh, almost every episode for being a great co-host, and I just want to say thank you for inviting me to do this because this was your show and you invited me to do this. And otherwise, I'm just like, you know, I'm just yelling things from the cheap seats. So <laughs> anyway, so I appreciate that. Thank you, Marcos. I also want to give a shout out to Dorothy Heat. Um, Dorothy writes up these, um, you know, every, every, uh, after every episode, almost every episode, she does a write up of our, of our show. So I appreciate that. We always usually thank the producer and we thank Kara and we think, but um, we think Carolyn, but I wanted to just give a shout out to Dorothy for the, the work that she's been doing. Um, and uh, I just want to say to our, our listeners, um, 
our viewers, our readers, like, don't give up hope. I know these are tough times. These are very tough times. They are sometimes financially tough. They are sometimes really tough with our family, the disconnectedness. I think one of the reasons that our last episode hit so well is because people feel disconnected. And I think, you know, the the idea of trying to figure out how to connect better, how to connect more is so important for us as, um, you know, as human beings, uh, as a humanity, as, and, and particularly in this moment as a democracy. So, you know, don't lose hope. Find, reach out to the people that you need to reach out to. Try to build bridges where you can you know, within the boundaries of what's safe and and mentally good and healthy for you, um, emotionally healthy for you. And um, we appreciate everything that you have brought to the table here at Daily Coast and that you are doing in your uh, daily lives. So uh, take care of yourselves. Happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe. Uh, be joyous. <laughs> knock back a drink if that's your thing otherwise just have some good food that's our show for today thanks to uh thank you carrie thanks to the entire brief team walter kara carolyn dorothy and thank you the viewer the listener the reader for everything you do for the activism and passion and energy you bring to this fight and to this movement love and appreciate all of you thank you so much have a wonderful year and see you in the new year bye-bye Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.